All right, folks, welcome to our Wednesday night equip. We're grateful for those of you that are online with us, joining us live, or you're watching this sometime uh, later in the week. There it is. I brought something up here with me and I was going to need it in just a second. So uh, certainly glad that you're uh, certainly glad that you're here for uh, our series Gospel for All. I'll uh, introduce our subject in a little bit, but uh, for a moment, I wanted us to pray together as we're um, uh, as we're in 14 days of prayer uh, as a congregation for our search uh, for a new uh, pastor. Uh, for adult discipleship and outreach. I hope you uh, have been praying uh, through this with us. And uh, we're now on day 11 of our, of our 14 days of prayer. This is the, the prayer for today. Pray that our new adult discipleship and outreach pastor will have a clear vision for how to minister to the people of Nansen River Baptist Church and the surrounding community. Um, th- this is an important, uh, important part of, uh, of our a commitment to pray for this person, an important thing of what we're looking for, because uh, it's the whole reason we're doing this. The, this all kind of was birthed out of the idea uh, of just a, a real sense and urgent need that we had for somebody to help our church, help us as a congregation um, do a better job of reaching out into our community that um, North Suffolk, the surrounding areas. Uh, I had a conversation just this week with somebody, you know, what, what do we consider to be our community when I use that phrase? And really most of the time what I'm talking about, and I think this person helped us define that a little better, but what I'm talking about is North Suffolk, um, uh, Churchland, Western Branch, uh, Carrollton. Uh, the, these really, this really makes up the community of our church, maybe five to seven miles from here. Uh, you can drive to it in 15 minutes or under, uh, unless Hampton Roads traffic is being Hampton Roads traffic, right? Uh, but w- w- here's what we need. Here's we look at those areas and we see just uh, incredible growth over the last uh, couple of years, last few years, and projection for just even more growth, particularly here on the uh, I-17 corridor in North Suffolk and in Isle of Wight County. And so we, we want to be prepared for that. We want to do everything that we can uh, to reach people with the good news of Jesus, to, to make sure people know that our church is here. And so uh, we want somebody to come in that can develop quickly a clear vision, a clear comprehensive strategy. That's the words our elders so often use for ministry here, a comprehensive strategy that we know what we're doing and we clearly communicate what we're doing to the congregation. Uh, and then we, we lead you uh, and equip you to do the work of ministry in, uh, in um, these different ways. And so I want us to pray for that today. I hope you've already prayed for that as you're praying through this prayer guide. Uh, but uh, so let's, let's do that together now. Father, we, we thank you that you um, have given us the resources as a congregation to begin thinking about bringing on another vocational pastor to serve on our elder team. Uh, to help uh, lead our church in this very important area as we make disciples of one another. And particularly as we do that through things like adult small groups and and equip other disciple-making areas of our church, but also as we make disciples of people in our community by reaching out to them in ministry and evangelism and proclaiming the gospel to them. And uh, it's gonna require Um, a clear vision, a clear strategy for how to do that. Um, And and something that that's beyond just, well, let's, let's go out. Right. But, uh, but it's, it's going to require us to think that, uh, to think differently and to maybe do things differently and, and to, uh, and to meet people where they are and to meet the needs of varied people in varied ways. And so God, we pray that you would lead us to somebody, you would lead somebody here to be a part of our team uh, who you've gifted in these ways. You've gifted evangelistically, you've gifted in strategy, and uh, you would give a clear vision to so that we then could um, continue to be equipped as a church uh, to, to do this work more and more, we pray. I pray for our time that we spend together tonight. I, I thank you, God, for 
uh, our opportunity to gather and to, to think about how uh, we pro- proclaim the gospel, not just here, but around the world to people who are similar to us and different from us. Um, and, and that regardless of what someone's background is, they are someone that you love and uh, that we then should love because they were created in the image of God and that it is someone that we should uh, desire to share the gospel with. So would you help us and encourage us and strengthen us today? We pray as we talk in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church family, as we've gone through this series together, uh, I hope this has been encouraging to you. I've had lots of good conversations with people as you've read some of the books that I've recommended. I've got another book I'm gonna recommend today that I think is really, really good. Uh, I've recommended it to some of you already as we've had some of these conversations. Um, and we've, we've talked about a, num- a number of people who in, in certain ways are similar to us. We're gonna return to that um, in, in coming weeks, but we're now going to think about people who we would definitely consider to be um, mission field. Often when we think of the mission field, we think of people of other religions. Now that doesn't always prove to be the case, right? Our mission field is anyone who has not heard the gospel of Jesus or has not believed the gospel of, uh, of Jesus unto salvation, right? That, that our mission field could be living in our home. Our mission field could be people living next door to us. But when I say missions and mission field, your mind most likely goes international. When I say missions, you probably think about the work that we do. If not the domestic work that we do on the Appalachian Trail and the Eastern Shore and in West Philadelphia, your initial thought probably, if you've been around here for very long, is in Africa. And it maybe even predates this, right? Because Africa is kind of that quintessential place where missionaries go. If you grew up as I did going to um, Southern Baptist churches, maybe you grew up doing exactly what our youngest kids here, if you've got younger preschool age kids here, um, we use a program called Mission Friends on Wednesday nights. I love Mission Friends. I'm glad we use it. I hope we'll continue to use it. And I actually have memories going back all the way back to my early years in uh, growing up in, in a Southern Baptist church in South Louisiana and going to things like Mission Friends. And then as you would graduate from Mission Friends, the boys would go to RAs uh, and GAs. And the whole goal of these things were to teach kids about missions. And, and I, I always associated missionaries with two places. Uh, one of them was China because that's where Lottie Moon lived. And if you don't know who Lottie Moon is, um, we, we ought to educate you because she's the most famous Southern Baptist missionary to ever live. Uh, we've got an offering named after her. Uh, and she lived in China. And so I thought missionaries went to China. But then I also was certain, I didn't know everywhere that missionaries went, but I was certain that missionaries went to Africa. That's where missionaries are. And then mo- a lot of my exposure, I've been to mission, to worked with missionaries all over the globe, but most of that work or a lot of that work at least has been in Africa. And a lot of the people that we work with in Africa are um, Muslims. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're, we're going to talk about the Muslim faith now uh, and, and how we can um, befriend people who are Muslims and how we can reach out with, with the gospel to them. But these are definitely people that you would consider to be part of the mission field and are people that you likely think live somewhere else. Um, but you, you may be, or you may not be surprised, depends on how well you know your neighbors or how well you know your coworkers, but you probably either know someone or have somebody that lives close to you who, who practices the Islamic faith. Uh, before we moved here, you, I think I've shared this before, but before we moved here, we, we lived uh, in a suburb of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, in, in Gastonia, which is a lot like where, where we live now, very similar. There's no military presence, but other than that, it was a very similar type community. And uh, we lived in a neighborhood, my family lived in a neighborhood, a lot like the neighborhood I live, I live over here by Bennett's Creek Park. And we lived in a neighborhood very similar to that, very similar size and structure, you know, same kind of families that lived in it. But, you know, right outside of the front entrance of, of our neighborhood uh, was, uh, was two things. One was a school, a, uh, uh, a charter school. 
And uh, right across the street from the charter school was, um, a, uh, was a mosque. And it was, it was very popular. They were, they were, people were there all the time. Now, this is a community in the South, uh, in, in, you know, suburban North Carolina. And uh, I, there were times that uh, they would be doing something special there. Uh, it wasn't technically considered a mosque. It was considered a community center. But they, it, anyway, within the structure of Islam, there's, there's varying places where they gathered. They call this community center. It operated as a mosque, I can promise you. Um, and there would be times that they'd be doing things. You could hardly even get down the road. There were, there were so many people there. And that was really eye-opening to me because even there, just like we do here, even there, I was going a couple of times a year to uh, Nigeria, to Western Africa, and sharing the gospel primarily amongst Muslim peoples. Um, and it, it, it was eye-opening for me because I was saying, man, I, would, I was getting on planes and, and going twice a year, halfway around the world, share the gospel with Muslims. And here, I mean, I could walk to this place, you know, quarter of a mile from my house was, was Muslims. We ended up actually having some people that, that started going there and like playing. So they would were playing soccer on, on Saturday mornings there. And so we had some people from our church start going and playing soccer. It's not my thing. Some people did just to kind of build some relationships. Um, recently somebody in our church approached me, uh, I mean, this year approached me and said, Hey, we've got new neighbors. People moved in next door to us and, and they're Muslims. What, what, how do we share the gospel with them? How do we, how do we think about that? So uh, while we so often think, and maybe this will be helpful for you if you one day do some kind of overseas trip, now that we're working in East Africa, uh, we're working less with Muslim populations, but there are, there are Muslim pockets in East Africa, particularly depending on where you go, but in the country that we go to, there are pockets of them, and there will be times that we do some specific ministry uh, with, with those people. So maybe this would be helpful to you, but you never know who the Lord's going to lead into your, lead into your path. So we don't need to just think about these people as being people that live in, you know, in Africa or in the Middle East. Middle East is probably the first thing that comes to your mind, uh, when, when you think about Muslims. The, the other thing that often comes to our minds when we think about Muslims, and, and this was, this is going to be a hard one for some of us, is, um, the last, uh, 20 years of, uh, of, American culture has been uh, very significantly shaped by September 11th in, in 2001. So we just had the 20th anniversary of, the, of that terrorist attack. And we had already had kind of some images in our minds of, of Muslims, depends on how old you are, you know, going back to the late 1970s and the, um, the hostage crisis in Iran. Um, and that was bef before my time. Uh, just before my time. Um, and then uh, for me, I grew up in during the first Gulf War. And so picturing, it was really kind of the first war to be like live on TV. I remember my dad waking me up as a kid and when, when they began the, the, the invasion. What was that? 2011, 2012, something like that. They began that invasion. I remember watching that on TV, just being mesmerized. Um, looked like Star Wars, you know. I remember the green lights flashing everywhere. Um, and, and so that, that had kind of shaped us. But then you get to 2001 and, and that, that terrorist attack in our nation that, that was done by um, Muslim extremists, that, that really began to shape the way, now tw two decades on, the way that we often think about Muslims. So when you hear that term, what you may very well hear is terrorist, is jihadi, is, is extremist. And I recognize the culture in which this microculture in which we do ministry here, uh, which in two weeks is going to be our topic of conversation, proclaiming the gospel in a military community, which I think is going to be really interesting to you. Um, but I, here's what I recognize. Some of you have been in these countries, not as a missionary, but as a soldier. And, and that's probably shaped a little bit, maybe in a big way, maybe a lot, the way that you think of Muslims, that you think of those who practice the Islamic faith. Um, so much so because of, because of the, the military aspect, the wars that we fought as a nation, the terrorism that we experienced in 2001, and then even, you know, predating other, other issues that we've had and, and borne witness to in, in conflicts in places like Israel and elsewhere. Um, there is probably, let's just be honest, there is probably uh, at least some level of prejudice within our hearts as we think about these people. 
it's not uncommon for me, not, I'm not talking about like in church setting, but just to, as you hear people talk about people in the Middle East, people from Africa, people who are, who are Islamic, that, that there, is, there, is some, uh, there is some prejudice in the way that we, the way that we think and speak about, about people. And, and in a lot of ways, we definitely operate as if these people are other than us. And we've even grown to the point, I think, in, even in Christian circles at times, of, of moving to the place where we stop thinking about these people as our neighbor. You remember the story, right, where Jesus said to, to love your neighbor and someone says, well, okay, but who really is my neighbor, right? And what were, they, what were they wanting to do? They were wanting to Jesus to say, well, good Jewish people, you know, people practicing, that's your neighbor, but the Samaritan certainly isn't, isn't your neighbor. And, uh, but that's not what Jesus said, right? Anybody that we see in need is, is our neighbor. And we need, to have, we need to have a right framework for that. And it's one of the places that we're gonna end up when we think about how we reach out to is, is Islamic people is, is really treating someone as if they are our neighbor and how important that is in this, in this process. So, so I recognize like there's layers to this. I recognize that, that this is this probably more than any of the other subjects that we're going to approach over the next, uh, we have a few weeks of this left until Thanksgiving when we'll take a break until January and start a new equip series. Um, but uh, uh, more than any of the other weeks, like this one's probably the one that, that may have a lot of baggage that comes with it just because of the, the world that we live in and, and the things that we've seen and experienced. And, and maybe even we have to recognize certain prejudices in our own hearts that we're going to need to get over because as much as the Lord loves you and created you in his image, the Lord loves and created in, the, in, in, in his own image those who, who practice this, what we would call it, consider a pagan religion. And, and we want to love them and share the gospel with them uh, as it is our goal to show God's love to all people at all times, as one of our core values says, and then to proclaim the gospel as our unifying message, uh, as one of our other uh, core value says. So what do we need to know about Islam? I'm not going to go into all of the detail. There's lots of resources and things that you can read, but um, just kind of, if, if you've never even thought about it, you just think this is something Middle Eastern people or uh, East Asian people or, you know, Sub-Saharan African people or North African people practice, uh, just a brief history. Islam is about 1400 years old. Muhammad lived in um, the seventh uh, century, so the 600 AD uh, period. It was in 610 AD, history tells us that Islam was officially founded. That's when um, the prophet Muhammad claimed to receive the uh, inspiration of the Quran. Uh, maybe surprising to you from the angel Gabriel, there is a lot of crossover and we're gonna see some of that tonight. A lot of overlap and distinction between uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, these, these are all three considered the Abrahamic faiths, right? Uh, they all trace lineage back to the promise that God makes to Abraham. It's an important part um, in Islam. It's obviously an important part in Judaism. And in, as you know, it's an important part of, of Christianity. Um, but they are not obviously co-equals, right? That, that one, all three make exclusive claims they all three cannot be, can, cannot be accurate, but you're going to see some, some overlap, certainly. Uh, it would be impossible to talk about Islam without, talk, without talking about the five pillars of Islam. You've likely heard about the five uh, pillars of Islam. These are, these are uh, like we have core, you know, we have, five, we have six core beliefs at our church. Those are not the only things that we believe as a congregation, but we kind of have six that were like these. These kind of help us know who we are as a, as a congregation. Well, all of Islam has, has five pillars and to know those, you have to know those pillars if you're going to know uh, who you're dealing with and who you're talking to and who you're trying to get to know for the sake of sharing the gospel with them. And so I wanna talk through these really quickly. The first pillar of Islam is a profession of faith. It is similar, um, Islam is to Christianity in that there is a demand for, sorry, there is a demand for a confession of faith. 
Um, the confession of faith in Islam is there is no God but God, or there is no God but Allah, or there is no Allah but Allah. Uh, and Muhammad is the messenger of God, or Muhammad is his prophet. And that is, that is the uh, confession of faith. It is the central tenet of Islam that there is one God, Allah, which by the way is just the Arabic word for God. Okay, so when our Arabic Christian brothers and sisters say the word God, do you know what word they say? Allah, and it's, that's okay, it's the Arabic word for God. But just like we have the word God, which is a lowercase g that means God, and then God, like talking about God, we, their language is similar. Um, uh, so there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is, is, is his prophet or, the, or is the messenger of God. Um, but those words, it's not intended to be just this rote phrase, right? Uh, it's, it's similar in Christianity. You know, we would say that just because you, you know, uh, said some words that's, you know, repeated some words after a preacher sometime and got baptized in church doesn't actually make you a Christian, right? We, we often will separate. And I think, you know, within Christian lingo, I don't use these, this lingo on Sunday mornings very much, but I, I will in here on Wednesday nights. Like there's, we, we would often say something like there's a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge, right? You've heard Christians say things like that. Well, Muslims would agree with you. Obviously their profession of faith is going to be different than ours, but it, it helps to draw that kind of corollary and make that connection to us. Um, there, but that very specific profession of faith uh, needs to be something that, that a Muslim recites with conviction, right? That they believe it, not just that they say it. I didn't become a Muslim because I said that. I heard somebody say that one time, that if you ever say the first pillar of Islam, that you're actually like becoming a Muslim. Like that, that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, that you have to say with conviction, you have to believe it, that it has to be something that, that you believe. Um, and then, but then they, that little phrase, we don't really have that phrase as a Christian, as Christians, you know, we don't really have like this one phrase, uh, as far as a, as a simplified confession of faith like that. Um, but, but that confession of faith finds itself in, in Islamic architecture, Islamic writings. Like it's, it's very popular and it is, it is said in Arabic, not in, not in someone's heart language or somebody's native language. That phrase is said in Arabic throughout the Islamic world that they, they would profess um, that there is no God but, but Allah and, and Muhammad is, is his messenger, is his prophet, um, is, um, and there's, there's the Arabic words for it. I don't know the Arabic words for it. So since I didn't say it in Arabic, I think we're okay. Um, second pillar of Islam is prayer. This is, this is the primary activity that we, from the outside looking in, associate with, with Muslims, isn't it? That Muslims pray a lot. Um, Muslim men, actually all Muslims are expected to pray. Muslim men are expected to pray kind of publicly five times a day. They're expected to pray at dawn, at noon, in the middle of the afternoon, at sunset, and then after dark. And um, if you've ever been in, in, in an Islamic country, you've likely seen this. You've very likely heard it. Um, because they do, there is a call to prayer. Um, if you've never been in, if you've never been in an Islamic country and you end up going at some point, there are numerous people in this room that have been, that you've been there with me. You've heard, if you went to Israel with me, you heard the call to prayer there. If you went to West Africa on our mission trips there, you heard the call to prayer there. Um, and, and if anybody's ever heard that, the, the first time you hear it, it's, it's kind of startling. Like there is, there's something to that that you're like, this is, this is different. Um, and, uh, it reminds you quickly, like I am, I am in a different place. And so, uh, there are most mosques in the Islamic world do five, uh, public call to prayer over the loudspeaker in places like West Africa, where we were working, uh, there were so many mosques that they would actually compete with each other. Um, and so there, the, the call to prayer is a guy singing, um, in Arabic. Uh, and the actual prayer that they pray is from the first part of the Quran. And often they would sing that. It would sing something. It was a guy singing in Arabic. So you have no idea what the guy's saying, but they would turn the volume. One would try to get louder than the other. Um, but they would do this five times a day. And a, if, if you'll pardon the phrase, a good Muslim, right? Someone that's actually going to practice um, the faith is, is going to go and pray. If not go to the mosque to pray, they're going to to pray somewhere um, five, five time, at, at those five times a day. So from, you know, sun up and, and even after dark. Um, 
there are specific things that they recite during this prayer, and including the, the recitation of the beginning of the Quran. Um, most often you, you associate this, we associate this as them praying on a prayer rug. You don't have to have the prayer rug, but they pretty much all do have, have the prayer rug. Uh, prayer mat, a, a small thing that they would, you know, small mat that they would unroll. They, um, they often gather together to do this and publicly pray together. And they are always facing uh, Mecca. So they're always going to face, which is in Saudi Arabia. So they're always going to face the Middle East, wherever they are, they're, they're going to face that direction and, and pray. Um, men gather at the mosque. So their version of Sunday morning church is actually on Friday at noon. And men will gather at the mosques at, at the noonday prayer on Friday. So a Muslim that's not a really good practicing Muslim, like a lot of them that we encountered in West Africa, weren't the best at practicing their Islam. Um, but most of them would still go to the mosque at noon on Friday. So noon on Friday is kind of their Sunday morning, right? And uh, at noon on Friday, they would go and pray. That was the most, that's the most important prayer time is the high noon on Friday. And then there was also a teaching, a sermon um, from the imam. The imam is their version of a pastor, their version of a, of a Bible teacher, uh, would, would give some kind of guidance to the, to the, to the men. Uh, women are welcome to come to mosques. Most pictures and images that you ever see of mosques don't have women in them. Um, some more progressive mosques have uh, equal sized rooms for men and women. Men and women don't pray in the same room at the mosque. And so um, many mosques will have a very small, if anything, section, particularly rural mosques will have very small, if any kind of section at all for women. Um, more progressive kind of uh, westernized kind of mosque, like mosques you'd probably find in the United States and, and in Europe will have larger sections, maybe even co-equal sections for women. But women are not required to go and to, and to pray. They're, they're primary responsibility in Islam is in the home. And so they, they would, they would pray, uh, in, in the home. And, uh, that's, that's really what we so often associate with, with Islam is, is that, you know, the big picture of them in these giant mosques somewhere all bowing at the same time. And there's things that they're doing. There's things they're saying. We just don't understand it because it's not in English. The third pillar of Islam is, is alms giving. Okay. Is, is giving to the poor. Uh, in accordance with Islamic law, Muslims donate a fixed portion. In most places, it's 2.5% of their income to community members in need. It's actually um, it, it, probably the most debated of the five pillars of Islam is, uh, is the almsgiving. Um, because are poor Muslims supposed to give to other poor Muslims that kind of the teaching of Islam is there's always somebody worse than you that you can, worse off than you that you can give to, right? Even for a poor person, they could probably find somebody even more poor. Um, and so almsgiving has kind of become a, uh, developed into its own system in a lot of these, in a lot of these places that, um, because Muslims are, are required to give. And so in most, most places, most teachings, there's kind of a set amount of money that they would have that defines, and this comes from the Quran. It's based off of the amount of gold coins you have, but nobody has gold coins. So, right, right. So it's, it's kind of derived from that and they would establish this kind of baseline. And then you're expected to give two and a half percent above that to, to, the, to the poor. And so you see this, if you've ever been to an Islamic country, you likely see people openly begging. Now we see people, you know, with cardboard signs and that kind of thing. That's kind of enigmatic of our culture, but we've not seen anything like, 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 uh, we don't see anything here. Like you really see in, in Islamic countries, there's like an organized system to this because people are, I mean, it's commanded. It's one of the five pillars that they're going to, that they're going to give, um, to, to the poor. Um, so there's not really this command to give directly to your, uh, to your church or your mosque. Like we, we would say, hey, give to the church, right? We support the missions of the church. And then we together distribute that in various ways, according to our mission and vision. Um, they're specifically told to give to the poor. So giving is, is, you know, integrated into, into both faith systems within Judaism and Christianity that the mark is normally 10%. Islam is, is a quarter of that. 
Um, but most of that giving is done directly to the poor. Very wealthy um, Islamic people are the ones who build mosques and Islamic schools um, because the, they're still required to give, right? And, but you can run out of people to give to. And so you, they, that's, that's who ends up building these things. And it's actually wealthy, um, wealthy Muslims go into rural poor places. They're the ones who build mosques and they, they, they do things that we often think about in some versions of Christian missions, right? Go build a church, go dig a well, go build a school. Uh, Muslims do that in most, in parts of the Islamic world, particularly in like poor sections of Africa, uh, far better than, than we do. We can never match them, which is why, by the way, uh, a lot of, that's how a lot of um, Africa was converted to Islam was they came in and they paid them to convert. They said, if you'll be Muslim, we'll dig your village a well and build you a school and all you're gonna have to do is come over here to this mosque. And they went, well, that sounds great. Let's do that. Um, and that happened generations ago and now they're all Muslims because they were generations before paid to be Muslims, okay? It's, it's way, it's in a lot of ways, uh, it, it's, that's the step before the sword. You know, we often think, well, you know, Islam spread by the sword. Well, not really. Most of the time, Islam spread with money. And, uh, and you see that in a lot of places in, in the Islamic world. The fourth is fasting, the fourth pillar of Islam. This is done during what is known as Ramadan. Ramadan changes every year, so it's not at a specific time. Um, it's the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, but the Islamic calendar doesn't align with our calendar, so it all kind of rotates. Um, every year to a, to a little bit of different time. Uh, but during Ramadan, all healthy adult Muslims are required to abstain from food and drink. This is a temporary, so it's just during the day, it's from sun up to sundown, basically from that first prayer to the, to the fourth prayer of the day. Uh, it's intended to renew their awareness and gratitude for what God, what Allah has, has provided. Um, they, um, they celebrate, they break their fast at the end of every day and then they do a, a really big celebration and, uh, and fast at the end of, at the end of uh, Ramadan where a, uh, a ram is, is slaughtered and it's, it's, a, it's a big deal, it's a big community deal. Uh, but the goal, the idea is that they're sharing in hunger and need during the day and then celebrating uh, the provision of, of Allah during the, during the evening times and then, and then at the end. Uh, really good, you want to talk about fasting. Fasting is probably something we don't talk about enough in, in the Christian world. It's something we're instructed to do. It is certainly a spiritual discipline. Um, Muslims got fasting down. I mean, like they're, they're doing this probably better than most of us. Um, a, a Muslim that's really practicing their, their Islamic faith uh, well uh, won't even swallow their spit during Ramadan, during the daytime. They, they take it that far. Uh, and so it's, it's not uncommon. I've been in Africa during Ramadan. It's not uncommon to even see little old ladies uh, spitting on the sidewalk during, during Ramadan because they, they won't, even swallow their, won't even swallow their spit uh, dur during that time. So, um, and, and um, that's, this is a big part. It's one of the, one of the pillars is to fast during, during Ramadan. The final pillar of Islam is pilgrimage. Every Muslim who is, and there's two quali qualifiers here, healthy and financially able, right? To make at least one visit to Mecca, which is in Saudi Arabia, uh, is required under uh, the five pillars of Islam to do so. Uh, you've seen this on television, right? The largest mosque in the world uh, is actually considered the most valuable building in the world that the mosque that's there in Saudi Arabia uh, where the Kaaba, it's what's in the center. There's this big box in the middle. It's called the Kaaba. Um, but that surrounding facility is, is, is valued, they say, at $100 billion. This is massive facility. And uh, some Muslims go every year. Um, you're, you're required under Islam if, you can, if you're able to get there to, to go once. And it's actually one of the ways that they give to the poor is that wealthy Muslims will sponsor a... Uh, poor Muslims pilgrimage, right? To, um, to go. There's certain things that they're supposed to do. You're supposed to walk around the Kaaba. The Kaaba, that big box, if you've ever wondered what's in that big cube, um, 
it's been destroyed and rebuilt several times, but uh, what it represents, what it's supposed to be, is uh, the uh, first house of worship that, that God instructed Abraham and his son Ishmael to build in the place where Abraham took um, Ishmael and his mother in Saudi Arabia and left them there for a period of time. Uh, and so it in some ways corresponds with the story of the Bible and a lot of Islam will do that. It'll correspond with the story of the Bible in some ways that it doesn't. Uh, and obviously as we'll, we'll see here in a minute, uh, Ishmael is an important figure in, um, in the Islamic faith. Well, that's, that's what this represents, right? And then there are other things that are there. There are a couple of rocks that's there that one scientists say is a meteorite, but uh, Islamists say is this, um, as a special rock that was given uh, by, uh, by God to, um, to Muhammad. I think it was given to Muhammad. I don't think it was given to Abraham. I think it was given to Muhammad. Uh, but then there's another rock that's there that supposedly Abraham stood on when he was building this house of worship, right? And these are in different parts. And there's certain things you have to do. It's not just go to Mecca. You actually have to go and like, you have to walk around the Kaaba a certain number of times and you have to touch this rock and you have to do these things. And if you do that without any, uh, if you do that without sin in your heart, right? If you don't, and there's certain lines of the Quran that, that they're supposed to do, certain prayers they're supposed to pray, um, then, um, th then all of your sins up until that point become forgiven. Like you leave, the Quran, the Quran teaches that uh, someone that does an appropriate pilgrimage, right, to Mecca, when they leave, their sins are as if they were babies, which we'll get to in a minute. It's kind of an important part of the doctrines at play within, within Islam. All right, so those are the five pillars, um, the profession of faith, prayer, alms, fasting, and pilgrimage. And if you do all of those things, what those things contribute to is they prove your faith, right? They contribute to good works in such a way um, that you will have more good works than bad. And, and as we think about the doctrines, it really kind of transitions to the doctrines of Islam. Um, the, the primary thing you need to understand, like those are the pillars of Islam. You say, well, how do all those things work together? Like how is an Islamic person in their minds, at least in that faith tradition, how is that person saved, right? We would say somebody's saved by grace through faith and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ alone. That's what our core belief statement says. Well, how is, how is an Islamic person saved? An Islamic person is saved by practicing those five pillars and in what is known as the scale of deeds, having their good deeds, their Islamic deeds, outweigh their bad. So they see sin as being sinful, just like us. They believe that people uh, are sinners, that there are, that there are uh, things that we are told to do, uh, that God has told us to do, that we are supposed to do, and to not do them is sin. There are things that God has told us to not do and to do those things, that those things are sin in a similar manner that, that uh, Jews and Christians both believe in, in sin in that way. But where, uh, uh, where Muslims differ from us is they believe that there is enough good you can do to actually outweigh. And so that at the resurrection of the dead, they believe that at some point um, God will resurrect the dead uh, and that what, what is known as the, your book of works that will actually be handed to you. And it's actually... If it's handed to you with the right hand, then, it, then you did good. If it's handed to you with the left hand, you did bad. Um, and that uh, faithful Muslims who, whose books of work show that they were faithful will go to heaven. That unfaithful Muslims, so just because you said the, the profession of faith, again, does not mean that you're going to go to heaven. Unfaithful Muslims and infidels, those who did not believe uh, in uh, the teachings of Muhammad through the Quran, uh, will, will, go to, will go to hell. So there is heaven and hell in, in Islamic faith. And all of this comes down to the scale of deeds. Now go back to that fifth pillar of Islam for a minute, right? If you go on a pilgrimage to Mecca and it resets you, it basically wipes away all your sin. There are certain strands of Islam that teach this for women and childbirth, that when a woman gives birth in, this is not taught uh, completely in, in as an area, because Islam, like Christianity, has different sects and different things, right? Different uh, people that, that hold to different things, but they, you know, so a pilgrimage for a man is, is equal to a woman giving birth to a child. And like the, some of them teach that childbirth resets you to zero in your, in your debt category. And the, the same is, would be true for going on a pilgrimage that, that the Quran teaches that it resets your sin debt 
back to zero. So you can imagine why those who, so next time you see the pilgrimage on TV, right? Next time you see, it's called the Hajj, by the way. We're using the pilgrimage word is the word we're familiar with. Muslims would call it a Hajj. Um, next time you see a Hajj to Mecca and you see hundreds of thousands of millions of people like gathering there, now you know why. They're resetting their sin debt to zero. At least in their minds, that's what they're doing, right? Uh, and so it begins to make sense why someone would go and do that. Because in, in, the, in that system, that, that's what they feel they can do. Um, there, there are 25 prophets. And we often, you know, I think of the prophet Muhammad as being the Muslim prophet. Muslims would say, no, that's a misunderstanding of Islam. There are actually 25 prophets that all Muslims agree are prophets. And then there are others, maybe a dozen or so more that are kind of contested, depends on what, which branch of Islam you're, you're a part of. But if you were to look up who those 25 um, uh, prophets are, you would recognize, I bet you 20 of the names because they're in the Bible. Uh, the first prophet, who do you think the first prophet was? No, Adam. Adam's the first prophet in, in, uh, in Islam. Noah was a prophet though. You got that right. Um, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Isaac, right? Ishmael is certainly one, but Isaac is also one. Isaac was the prophet that begun, begins the, um, the Jewish race, right? Um, he's lesser than, than Ishmael. Uh, you get all the way to the last one. That's Muhammad. You know, who the prophet is before Muhammad, Jesus. And so when you go to, a, when you go to a, a Muslim and say, do you believe in Jesus? They're going to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. When you say, do, you know, let me tell you a story about Jesus, you know, healing the sick. They're going to say, that was a great story. I believe that Jesus did exactly what you said he did. So the country that we used to go to in West Africa, uh, because this is online, I'm trying to say those, those places, because uh, that place particularly is a security issue. Um, but in that, in that, um, Islamic countries, 98% Muslim, right? I mean, Christians are tiny, tiny minority, 98% Muslim, completely controlled by, um, uh, by Muslims. The, the government is, everything's run by government. But do you know that on their, on their nationwide television station, uh, every year at, I believe it's at Christmas time, the, um, the Jesus film, which is an evangelistic movie about Jesus is shown nationwide and everybody with a TV in that nation has seen it. Like they know it. They know what, they know the story because they would certainly affirm that Jesus was sent from God. They would even call him the Messiah as in the anointed one, that he was anointed um, by God to teach people. But that Muhammad being the last, the way they would describe Muhammad is that Muhammad would be the last and greatest of the of the prophets. So anything any of the other prophets said that Muhammad corrects, we go with, they would go with Muhammad, right? That Muhammad said this. And, and so Muhammad said that Jesus, while a prophet, um, did not die for the sins of man. And so, because Muhammad says this, that's where we would, that's where they would part ways with us. So what are some of the overlaps and distinctions? Obviously you see a lot of them, right? They believe there is one true God. That is, we believe there's one true God, their profession of faith, right? There is, there is no God, but God. Now, if we don't put the word Allah in there, if I just say these words, there is no God, but God, there's not a person in this room that would disagree with me on that, right? You would all be like, absolutely. There is no God, but God. But then, so that's a, that is certainly a, an overlap, um, Obviously, we consider the, the personal name for God to be Yahweh. That's the, that's the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for God. The Old Testament Hebrew word for God, or the, the, the Arabic word for God is Allah. And that, they would say, is the personal name. That's kind of where that deviates a little bit in that their word for God and their name for God is the same exact thing. So you're going to kind of be careful which, which Allah you're talking about there. Uh, and then there's certainly a lot more deviation when you get into the doctrine of the Trinity. So they believe, I'm, I've had Muslims look me in the face and say, you don't believe in one God, you believe in three gods. Well, 
Yes, I do believe in three gods, but I believe in one God. I believe they're one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's difficult for Muslims because Muslims, there is, there is one God and God is God, right? Allah is, Allah is the only God. And so for us to make some kind of distinction that God can eternally exist as one, but also as three is, is a diversion from uh, that overlap. Number two, a lot of the story that we see in uh, the Old Testament is told in very similar fashion, sometimes almost exact fashion, sometimes with different details and, and some very important details, particularly when you get to the story of Adam, uh, not Adam, when you get to the story of Abraham, but their Bible or their Quran and their story there begins in the same way that our Bible does, right? That God created everything and then he placed Adam there in the garden, right? And that Adam lived in the garden. The Quran actually says Adam lived in the garden 500 years. The Bible doesn't say how long Adam lived there. We don't know how long Adam lived there. I listened to a, somebody sent me a preacher uh, clip today. I get preacher clips all the time. Somebody sent me a preacher clip today. And this preacher said that Adam lived in the garden for 33 and a half years because that's how long Jesus lived on earth. And Adam was the first, you know, Adam and Jesus was the last Adam. And so that must be how long he lived in the garden. I thought, well, that's just silly. Um, we have no idea how long Adam lived in the garden, but right. But the stories are similar and they progress through. There's the story of Noah and Noah was a prophet, right? Same in the same way. And you get to Abraham, Abraham is a covenant bearer where you see the divergent, right? Where you see the distinction is, uh, who does the covenant pass to the covenant promise passes to Isaac in, in, uh, Judaism and ultimately into Christianity, uh, in the, in the Quran, there's a correction to that. No, it was God's blessed people are the Arabic people, uh, not the Jewish people. And that the primary blessing from Abraham comes through Ishmael. Now we would say that God does offer an ex a different blessing to Ishmael. You can go back and listen to that sermon I preached uh, last year when we were preaching through Genesis. Uh, but it's it, the, the big hang up, the big question, right, is over, over where, over did the covenant go to Ishmael or did it go to, to Isaac? And again, they see Jesus as a powerful prophet, um, but not God made flesh who offers salvation for sin. So when we think about, and that's not everything there is to know about Islam. I mean, this is a worldwide religion with um, 1.3 billion people that, that, that follow its tenets now, something like that. I mean, it's, it's massive. Um, they're, there are varying groups. You've all heard of the Sunni and the Shia Muslims. And, and they're, even within that, there are, there are much smaller groups. And, and we don't have time to go into all of that. All of that finds its base in who took over from Muhammad when it was over. So if you've ever wondered why within the Middle East, people in these varying countries like absolutely hate each other, it's, it all traces back to Muhammad died. And uh, who, who did you follow after that? There was a power struggle in the seventh century. And, it, and that power struggle is still happening today. Um, and so because of that, because you have these distinct like versions, and then now in a modern thing is you have, you have kind of, lib, like we have liberal Christianity, they have liberal, liberalized Islam, right? And then you also, like we have fundamental Christianity and not in a good way, but I mean like legalist type Christianity, like the, like the Jews had the Pharisees, and we have the fundamentalists who want to, you know, hold people down and give people a bunch of rules to follow while Jesus is set us free. Uh, Islam has the same thing, right? There are some radical fundamentalist Islamists. We're seeing that, right, take over in Afghanistan now and elsewhere. And where that's really showing up in our news media and places is, is with jihadis and, and what we would describe as, as terrorists, right? People that are willing to kill in, in the name of their, or at least take innocent life in, in the name of their God. And so... Um, you can't say everything there is in, in one little session about, about Muslims because Muslim, they're going to be varying degrees. If you go to a Muslim in America and you're like, do you agree with the Muslims that are in Afghanistan right now? They're, they, most of them, or some may, but most of them are going to say, no, I don't agree with them. Just like we don't agree with every other version of Christianity that's around. But let's say the Lord leads one of these people into your path. You meet one of them, they're, they're in your neighborhood, they're at, your, they're at your place of work. What are you going to do? You, you know now kind of what they believe. Maybe you knew some of this. Well, let me give you four things. Most of this comes from this, not all of this, but most of this comes from this book. It's kind of a variation. This book is called The Gospel for Muslims. 
uh, an encouragement to share Christ with confidence. It was written by Thabiti Anuible, who is a former Muslim. He now pastors in DC. When he wrote this book, he pastored um, First Baptist uh, Grand Cayman Island, which by the way, if there's ever a church that I would leave here to go pastor, it's probably First Baptist Grand Cayman Island. Let's just all be honest, you would too. Um, he actually left First Baptist Grand Cayman Island to go plant a church in a bad part of Washington, D.C. You know God's called you to go do something when you're willing to take that kind of step, okay? Um, but he used to serve as an assistant pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist in, in Washington, D.C., right, right downtown. Yeah, I know, right. Well, there's, you know, maybe. Um, and, uh, and so, this, so he, is, he is a former Muslim, and he wrote this book a number of years ago. It's a really good book if you're interested, The Gospel for Muslims by Thabiti Anyuible. You could come take a picture of it if you wanted to when it was over. Um, and so a lot of this comes from, comes from his book. But I'm going to just give you four things kind of as we start to wrap up tonight. First is this. I, I think this speaks to um, some of our prejudice, some of the way that we have grown to view Muslims over the last few decades in America. And that is that we really need to trust the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to trust the Holy Spirit as we share the gospel with anybody. I've made this argument clearly, I think. I make this argument all the time, probably, but I've made it clearly in this, in this Equip series. You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. All, right? all I can do is share the gospel with people, believing that it is the Holy Spirit that brings people unto salvation, that he births new life in them, that they profess faith in Jesus Christ and believe and are saved. That, that I got I, I can't. As John 3 says, the wind blows where it may, right? I, I don't get to determine which direction the wind blows. I can pray that the wind will blow, but God's going to do what God's going to do. Um, so when we say trust the Holy Spirit, we certainly mean that in any gospel conversation, in any encounter we have with somebody that's lost, we want to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to redeem hearts and lives. Um, but I think that goes a step further here, that we have to actually believe that God wants to save Muslims, and I say that recognizing that because of our experience, because of the moment in time we find ourselves in and what's progressed, what's transgressed, excuse me, over the last uh, several decades, it is easy for us to sit in, in a position of judgment, even within the church and say, I just wish God would kill all of them. I've heard Christians say those words. I, I just, I just wish God, God should just wipe them all out. Um, let, let's, let's just affirm what we already as a church affirm. And that is that God created every human being in his image, that he loves humanity as the crowning work of his creation. This is our, this is one of our core values. I think it's our third, the third core value of our, of our church that God loves all people. Um, and uh, he created them all in his image and that we are expected to show God's love to all people at all times. And part of that means that we pray for their salvation and that we believe that God can save even those who would hold to this faith tradition. Um, we, we must trust that God will open the hearts of, um, of Muslims and, and, ha and that they will come to faith in Jesus. We are seeing this. Um, the gospel is spreading faster. And do you know that there are more Christians on the African continent than there are in any other continent in the world? Christianity is no longer a, a, a Western religion. There are more Christians uh, on the African continent and more Christians on, uh, the second is no longer North American either. The second is now Asia. Um, there are more Christians in those places than anywhere else in the world. And many, many, many of those Christians came to faith, particularly in Africa, came to faith uh, out of Islam. They're called Muslim background believers. And we're seeing the gospel spread in those places. And uh, we should pray to that end and, and trust that the Lord will open the hearts uh, of those uh, who hear the gospel and that they will believe. And that's not just Muslims there. That should be, again, that applies to those that are in our lives. We should pray for that. If you've been, if you've been, um, uh, uh, been exposed, right? Do you have someone in your life that, that is, is uh, Muslim? I hope you pray for them. I told you I began by introducing this, by talking about that uh, Muslim community center where we used to live. My, um, my practice began, became uh, to pray for those people every time I drove past it. It, it changed something in my heart, right? It's, it's, 
you've probably heard this said before. It's hard to hate somebody you pray for every day, right? And so um, I hope you're praying for, for those people. And my exposure to uh, Muslim people in Africa, the, the number of times that I've been there and been able to share the gospel with people has really tenderized my heart to, uh, to them. I believe they've been blinded by Satan. Listen, there is no salvation in Islam, okay? That saying those things and doing the, doing the, the five pillars, because here's what we know, the scales will never tip in their way. They'll never tip in their way. Uh, and so we want the Holy Spirit to tenderize our hearts and for us to trust that the Holy Spirit will do the work that he'll do. Number two, we want to trust scripture. We, we, we must trust that scripture is true and, and be willing to show and defend the differences and, and to be able to say that, so this is, this is what God has said to be true about, about Abraham. This is what God has said to be true about his covenant promise to his people this is what God has said to be true about Jesus, that Jesus wasn't just a prophet, a good teacher. Um, even as far as to say, God, he wasn't just a miracle worker sent by God. He, he is the Christ, the son. He is God. He, he gave himself for you. Um, we must be, and this is, this is the third one. I think this is really important. He argues for this in this book. We must be hospitable people. If God has brought someone who is a Muslim into your life, probably the best encouragement you could have today is show that person incredible hospitality. I believe Christians damage our witness for the gospel when we fail to practice hospitality. We're commanded in scripture to practice hospitality. Please know that. Uh, it, is, it is a clear command in scripture for us to be hospitable, not just to one another, but for us to be hospitable to the sojourner, for us to be hospitable to the foreigner. These are, these are both words used in the Old Testament. Uh, the principles repeated in the New Testament that we're not supposed to just be hospitable to people like us. It's the whole story of the Good Samaritan that we're not supposed to just be hospitable to people like us, but also to people opposite of us. We're supposed to show that kind of love. And here's, what, here's why hospitality is so important if you're, if you're trying to share the gospel with a Muslim. Because I promise you, they are more hospitable than you are. It is a very valuable quality in Islam, the practice of hospitality. Listen, these people will give you the shirt off their back. And this is, this is the kind of people they are, right? Now I'm not talking about the extremists. I understand, look, there's extremists, but we got to recognize that's a small percentage. Um, my one-on-one -on -one individual encounters with Islamic people, particularly in West Africa has been, um, those people would do anything in the world for me, they would give me, and these people had nothing and they would give me uh, any, anything they had. And so how do we, what do we need to do? We need to show hospitality to those who speak the language of hospitality because that's the language they speak. We speak it back to them. So what's the most important thing maybe you could do for, for an Islamic person at your work or on your street? Invite them to your home for dinner. Have them over, help them, treat them well. Uh, because being hospitable is going to go a long way. An unhospitable person is not going to have the audience that is needed to proclaim the gospel to a Muslim. So be hospitable. Last, rely on the hope of the gospel alone. Here's ultimately where you want to get with a Muslim. It, there's a lot of defining terms when you talk to Islam, Muslims because you got to talk about who Abraham is. You got to talk about who Jesus is. You got to talk about the Bible versus the Quran, right? We have to be able to do those things. But truthfully, it all boils down to one very simple, and I've, I've witnessed this and, and have been amazed by it. It boils down to one very simple question. You ready? Do you believe your good can outweigh your bad? That's what it comes down to. That once we've defined all these terms and we've gotten to know people and we've built relationships and we're having good conversations, it all boils down to, do you believe your good can outweigh your bad? I remember this coming like so alive to me um, in West Africa several years ago, out sharing the gospel um, and we had encountered some guys and they were willing to talk about it. Some Muslims really don't want to talk to you about it, but these guys were willing to talk and they were asking questions. And, uh, I was with a guy who was translating for us a lot. His, um, his translated name is John. His, uh, but the, 
the West African, in the West African dialect, it was Yaya, which I think Yaya is so much more fun than John. And uh, uh, so, and Yaya was an incredible evangelist in his own right. Loved that young man. And he said, uh, would you mind if, I was doing all the talking, he was doing all the translating, they were asking questions. And he said, would you mind if I asked them a question? You're going to be better at this than me. This is your culture. And he asked these Muslim guys, he said, how, how long was Adam in the garden? And they said, 500 years. That's how I know that the Quran teaches it's 500 years because of this conversation. And they said, and he said, yeah, I said, okay, well, how many times, and this was all in their language. He translated it for me later. He said, how many times did Adam and Eve sin before they were kicked out of the garden? And they said, one time. And what happens when they were kicked out of the garden? Well, they, they died eventually. They ultimately died, right? They lost communion with God and they died. Yeah, he said, right. So 500 years of good, of perfect works, meant they were kicked out of the garden because of one sin. So how in the world can you think that all of the sin in your life could possibly be offset by anything good you do in this life. If 500 years of good was found guilty because of one sin, I thought, man, that is just incredible, right? And I would love to tell you that those guys came to know Jesus that day, but I think we had, we ended up with some good conversations and ended up parting ways, but I have no doubt those guys have thought about that since then. Maybe I trust the Lord. Maybe the Lord has birthed more, you know, inquisition and, and desire to know more. And they, they've gone to find more uh, information because ultimately this is what it comes down to. Could, can you offset? And here's what we know, we can't. But Jesus has paid a price that we couldn't pay. And this speaks to the Islamic understanding of Jesus versus ours. Why did it have to be Jesus? Because only God himself could pay the price to satisfy his own wrath. No human earthly sacrifice would do. It had to be God. So then no other prophet is needed. I don't need to listen to anything Muhammad said because what Jesus did finished it once and for all. Uh, and so this is, look, it's gonna be long, lengthy conversations and probably befriending people and, and overcoming differences and recognizing that there's overlap, but the faith traditions ultimately are very different, but you've got to boil it down to this one thing. Do you really think you can do enough good to overcome your bad? Because Islamists are not like Americans who it can be hard to convince an American that they're bad. Nope, we, our culture, you know, humanists don't like to think of ourselves as being very bad. And so secular humanism kind of being the dominant worldview in America today, you, you approach people and they think of themselves as being generally good, right? Muslims don't. <laughs> they know they're sinners. They're very aware of it, which is why they go to the mosque and pray five times a day. It's why they won't swallow their spit during Ramadan. It's why they give to the poor standing on the street. It's why they'll, in some cases, sell everything they have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca because they know they got to overcome the bad. And here's what we know. They can't do it. Just as we know we can't do it. If you're relying on your good of being here at church to overcome your bad, understand something. You're no better than them. You can't do it either. But Jesus did. And this is what we want to get to with them. There's so much more to know about Islam. I would encourage you to read this book. I think he's fair in this book. Um, and this isn't like a bunch of strategies for you know, how to win an argument, but it's really about how to befriend and know a Muslim and trust in the gospel to save them. And so the gospel for Muslims by Thavidi, Anya Weeblay, um, they sell it on Amazon. Let me pray for us and we'll go. Father, I, I, I thank you that um, you, you loved me dead in my trespasses and sin and at my worst moment, uh, at the worst I could possibly be, Jesus died for me, and I know that love, and I know that you have that love, God, for those who are still far off from you. 
the gospel can bring them close. And we pray for our missionaries right now who are in places like North Africa and the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, East Asia, who are proclaiming the gospel in very difficult places, some of which are living in places that they have spent years and never seen a single soul come to faith in Jesus, but they are, they are faithfully sharing the gospel. For others, they're seeing an, over, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and they're seeing many come to faith. We celebrate that. Father, we pray that we don't only see these people as other than and foreign to us, but recognize that millions of them live right here and probably closer than we think. Would you break our hearts for them? Would you help us desire to see them come to know Jesus? And would you lead them into our lives if you've not already done so, so that we can show them the, the dear, sweet love of our Savior? who gave himself for us so that we don't have to try to outweigh our good with our bad, but we can trust on the imparted righteousness of Jesus, which is so much better than anything we could ever muster on our own, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, those that join us online. Uh, we look forward to seeing you back here next week. God bless you.